This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, welcome to this Saturday's Ivory Tower Boiler Room interview with Lev Raphael. This is part two of a three-part series. Thanks again to my co-host, Erica Grumet, who not only fanned out over getting to interview Lev, but in this episode, How to Write a Sex Scene with Lev Raphael, she gets some more information of writing tips about the process that she's currently undergoing, which is writing a sex scene and Lev has so much to contribute about how he approaches this in his own writing. I know all of you out there will learn so much from it. I learned so much from this conversation. I want to thank again Lev for just giving so much time, creative time, mentorship uh, to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and now getting to allow us to feature his writing on our blog space. We really appreciate it, Lev. So without further ado, first you'll hear our theme song, Lover Man, and then you will hear about writing a sex scene. Enjoy. Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We're actually always in this metaphorical place, but um, we are doing a first time occasion where we're actually bringing a guest back right after we just saw the guest. So we don't always do that back to back. Um, so Lev Raphael, welcome back. It's wonderful to have your time again and I know Erica and I have been talking all week about what we could ask you, but I'm going to give it to Erica because she just ended the part that I'm sure the listeners really want to hear about sex. So, Erica, what was your question? Well, uh, don't we, we need, don't don't we need a song uh, um, a song cue? Let's talk about sex, or maybe not. Oh, I'm not sure that was in the public domain yet. So. Uh... Oh, okay. I'll use it for Spotify, but. <laughs> some behind the okay story. excellent i love that song um so yeah erica what are you writing right now well um i stepped away from the the poetry that i've been cornered by for months and months and months and uh started playing with a short story again um and then i 
found that my characters wanted to go somewhere and they wanted to go to bed, but I can't get them there. Um, and so I have spent probably the last two months trying to figure this out. Um, and I have talked to people and talked to my writing community and groused about it and complained about it and done a deep dive into critical reading of porn and erotica and literature just to try and figure out what was going on and why I can't break through and write this, this scene because I should be able to follow these two characters there, but I can't get them to. And I know we started to talk about that last week. Um, well, writing sex scenes is not easy, but it's really quite complicated. So I think, and I think a lot of people uh, get stuck uh, the way you are. Uh, and, I, and, and there are various reasons, but uh, part of the problem is that um, it's very easy to be uh, mildly embarrassed to begin with, to be writing a scene, uh, a sex scene. And it's and it's it's a different kind. Of, it can be a different kind of writing. My first editor at St. Martin's Press actually pointed out to me that I wasn't writing enough sex in my first collection of short stories, Dancing on Tishaba Av. The stories had been uh, all had been published, but he said there were places that that I needed to do a sex scene. Mm. And I asked him why, and he said, "Well, because that's one of the ways." Uh, in which readers will get to know a character better than any other, and I I realized I was I was embarrassed uh, not by sex itself, but by writing it. Uh, and I never forgot his his main point was that this that it, the scene reveals character. And I think that's something that that I've taught in uh, writing workshops, um, in person and online at writewithoutborders.com. And the, so the question really is, Erica, I think, why this scene now in the short story? What what would it tell readers about your character or characters that they would not know in any other way? Uh, how does this transmit information? That's part one. Part two uh, is the is the um, the guidance that I've also gotten from editors um, that don't focus on parts, focus on feeling, focus on the emotions that the characters are are experiencing, and. Uh, Try not to end up, which is what a lot of people do, unfortunately, um, with a, a listing of a geographical locations. You know, this is this, this is here, she does that, he does this. And too often when people write sex scenes, the people disappear and the parts take over. Mm -hmm. So those are two, two separate things that have, um, have fueled my teaching uh, about it and also my writing about it and and freed me up that's really interesting. I don't know if that's helpful. Oh no it, it really is because after I went through all of this reading and I read a lot I've actually written about it for for the ivory tower uh, boiler room blog which will come out in a couple of weeks I think uh, my conclusion is that it's not 
a shame issue or an embarrassment issue. I mean, I've taught human sexuality before for years and years and years. I stood up in front of groups of thousands and said a lot of things. It's a writing issue. It's about crafting and shaping the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and where, you know, where are the lines? And I think in the essay, I said something about, you know, the quickie on the kitchen table on Friday night on, you know, the quickie over the kitchen table, the Friday night date or all day in bed Saturday mm. kind of being degrees. Um, so that was that. Well, it's, it's fun. It's funny you mentioned kitchen table because one cliche that I see uh, uh, frequently in movies and TV shows is is a couple of whatever kind having sex on a table or a desk. Yeah. And everything on the on the desk or the table has to be swept to the floor because obviously the audience is too stupid to realize that they're excited. If you break a lot of stuff and it goes tumbling down onto the floor, ah, that's a clue. So those those scenes always make me laugh. Mm, that's a that's a very desperate housewives <laughs> a, a driven plot. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's it's pretty much it's pretty much standard. You know, it's it's so much the case that my when my husband and I are watching a TV or movie, uh, a movie, uh, uh, he'll say, "Oh, isn't isn't that strange? They're having sex in bed. Who does that?" <laughs> See, and I was going to say it's just a distraction, so nobody has to see anybody fumbling with a bra. There you go. There you go. That's another that's another way to approach it. So um, but, you know, feel free to write me, uh, Erica, and we could talk about about uh, about sexy. Yeah. And everyone out there who's maybe this is such a conundrum of someone who. I mean, I feel that most creative writers will eventually have to reckon with this in a way that a performer will have to reckon with a sex scene um, and how they embody their character. And that's a whole other psyche. Uh, But I mean, maybe if I can just give examples, this is something I brought up to Lev and left him in suspense, but the sexual tension of Mark and Nat that you have in um, Dancing on Tisha B'Av with the prayer shawl touching, to me was so effective of titillation as a reader. I really enjoy those kinds of um, clues of desire um, where Mm -hmm. you were Mm -hmm. out of the, I think what even Erica I'm hearing is once you have to explicitly describe the sex act that you're trying to discuss, um, we've seen really wide array of examples. For me, it's more just if you have to name the body part, it starts to fall into um, cliches. Like for me, the most successful- Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, love. No, absolutely, yeah, I think it's, and that's the thing that when when, when I work with uh, uh, writers either online or will work with people in person, is to point out that you you can do a sex scene without without actually naming things, uh, because uh, so much of sex is in the head anyway. Yeah, is in our heads, is in but our minds. Get... It's what people it's what people are feeling. Yeah, and I mean, and I I'm sure you, all of us we've read, read such a range, and I always say sometimes read read this text that are really bestsellers just to see why 
the mass consumer is so invested, like Fifty Shades of Grey. My friends all were starting to read it. And they're like, do you want to join us in our discussion? I said, sure. I'm sure it'll be interesting. Um, and I remember reading it. And I wouldn't say it wasn't titillating. That was definitely the escapism of why it did so well. But I mean, when I was reading about the male member, I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things I've discovered though too is is the language is so so different um and you know in just careful so carefully choosing the words mm -hmm. and and what if you're going to name something what you're naming it i mean yeah. there are things that you know will move from one of those categories into another just because of the language Absolutely. And that's why I think uh, it's 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 helpful to see the scene as uh, no different from any other scene in the story or the book and to uh, and to make sure that the language is the same. The language is uh, congruent all the way through so that so that readers don't feel, oh, now we're shifting gear and now we're having a sex scene as opposed to, oh, the, mo uh, the story has moved into a sex scene and this is just part of what's happening. It's funny that you mentioned Fifty Shades of Grey because of course I, you know, as a writer and as someone who's taught writing for so many years, I had to read it. Uh, uh, it was a cultural phenomenon. And, but what actually got me reading it was being in a, a doctor's office uh, in the waiting room and hearing two quite elderly women behind me. They must have been easily 90 years old. Um, talking about the book, one said, have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? And the other one said, yes. And so of course, you know, uh, my ears were uh, grew larger like Dumbo, right? And I was wondering where they were going. And so the first one said, well, what did you think about it? And there was a long pause. And the other uh, elderly woman said, well, I don't think I learned anything new from it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and I, that is that is a true. That is, is an true. absolutely true story. Oh, I love that story, Lev, because that cultural phenomenon. It reminds me of what, right? Uh, you and so Gershon Kaufman is your husband, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you and your husband with coming out of shame, transforming gay and lesbian lives. I was really drawn to your intro where it just explains about this journey toward wholeness quote i should quote it the journey toward wholeness must first take us deeper into shame before bringing us out of shame with pride reaffirmed power restored and hope for the future renewed and how you both of you explain like for gershon it was what brought you two together and it dissolved his doubt and conflict and for you it was the awareness that there comes a time when love is stronger than fear and shame. And if anything, I mean, you probably never thought I would, someone would tie this to Fifty Shades of Grey, but I think in a way the cultural phenomenon was that sex was now in the public. And that to me is why it really sold was, oh, we can all talk about this without feeling shameful. We can That's experience a very good point. fantasy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I have to say, though, uh, that I, uh, in, in addition to that, I've used at least one sex scene from that in writing workshops uh, as an example of how not to write. And because uh, uh, as one of my students said uh, in, in one workshop, uh, that scene sounds like a Picasso. I can't figure out what part is where. It doesn't, it's, it 
things don't add up so that you uh, and so i thought that was i thought that was on target uh yeah. the writing is really the writing is really is terrible i i, I think yeah. i can say that about a bestseller it's all right um and 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 it's entertainingly terrible and yeah. so it's useful uh, as a counter example and that's sometimes what i tell uh, uh students and writing clients as well if you started a book that's really bad or that you think isn't working it's not it's not terrible to keep reading mm-hmm. so that you can identify the things that don't work for you which will help you with your own writing i mean they will teach you what you don't want to do it's of a, course yes, you know, yes. and yeah. so Sorry. So I, I thought the book was a hoot. I, no, I thought the book was a hoot. I mean, I just uh, I, I, it was so awkwardly written and there were so many things that were wrong with it. I, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, there just isn't new. And, you know, I, I yeah. As a writer, it was it was interesting because because of the things you point out. I mean, it was Twilight fanfic. And, mm-hmm. and absolutely right, exactly. Fanfic, you know, there's a, a wide range of, of skill and, and effort and talent and quality in fanfic. Yeah. And- as a feminist, as, you know, and as somebody who has been involved in violent relationships, I had a lot of trouble with it, but that's a different discussion. Oh. Mm. That is a different. That is a different discussion, and there's also the the, the there's also the author's really weird focus on the contract that they have to mm-hmm. put together. I mean, my God, um, you know, there's more time spent on that. You feel like you're in a law school class or something. Um, but but uh, again, it's a te- it's a useful teaching tool. So exactly, um, there are and there are plenty of people who do write good. Well, and when you find someone who does if it's if it's all right with you i have a few examples of those who i think did especially in the queer like i think that i haven't yet seen the queer literature sex novel as a cultural phenomenon and i think that's telling about our society why was it like erica's saying why was it this problematic bdsm that really isn't even about the kink community um like doesn't take into effect the king community. And I would actually say appropriates what BDSM is to serve as this intimate partner violence narrative, um, mm-hmm. which I'm sure Erica, we're on the same page about. Oh yeah. Yeah, but like, why was that the main, and right, it became all these movies. And I also think that I've been in book clubs recently, Lev, and we read contemporary literature and I enjoy it because I like to see all the different new themes and um, try to keep my finger on the pulse. And sometimes I think that the style works really well. And other times, like you said, it's wonderful to read against the grain because that's a teaching moment. And um, I do think there's a lot of popular literature right now that I would call them book to movie or book to TV, um, greenlighting them. That, like to me, Fifty Shades of Grey, they knew that was going to become a movie as soon as she read it. Wrote yeah, it. I would she agree. Was a, she was a producer for television. Um, so when you're writing for a purpose like that, 
right? I think it's, well, I mean, you could probably speak to this. It's the tension with the big publishers is, I'm always curious how much behind the scenes are they doing to craft the author's narrative to fit what they think is going to sell or what's just going to fit a trope? I think it depends on the, uh, on the editor and the publishing house. I've seen over the years that editors do less and less editing are less willing to do uh, editing that, that what they really want is a product. Uh, and uh, to be honest, the book is a product uh, from their standpoint. And I think writers need to see it that way too, because writing is a business as well as an art. I think they want you know, books as finished as possible. I, I know that's what agents want too. They do not want to put a lot of work into it. I, I'll give you an example of something that I couldn't imagine happening now. When uh, All the stories, I think, except maybe one uh, or two uh, in my first book of short stories, Dancing on Tishabov, had been previously published in various magazines and newspapers. However, so they'd all been edited by the those editors. When, uh, when we put the collection together, Michael Denny, the editor at St. Martin's Press and I spent a full seven months going over each story and re-editing it so, so that the stories would work together as an ensemble, but also because he had a new, a new vision. He was a new set of eyes. And this, and this, there's nothing that doesn't need uh, editing. Um, that's a double negative, isn't it? But it's okay. Everything needs editing, you know. Uh, and I was grateful. I was grateful that um, to for that because I learned so much from him. Um, that and I carry that into my own teaching and editing. But I, I, I would be surprised if any editor would spend seven months um, on a book wow. now. Well, because they want to get pro they want to get product out as quickly as possible. Well, and see, and that's where I feel the conundrum is because the deadline is so looming that it really just feels like it's become manufactured publication, and like how quickly everything has to be done. Um, Right, you've but, got to keep readers yeah. satisfied. You've, and and that, that, that can be, a, a, it can be wonderful to, it's wonderful to have a, a contract, uh, it, but it can be very, very stressful to have to keep producing a book a year and content in between uh, each, each book that's published. That's why I'm glad that I have published in, uh, across genres in about 10 or 12 different genres, because I've never felt, oh my God, I have, I have to get a book done this year, uh, or else I'm doomed. Um, and you know, this, the, the downside to that is if you don't stay in the same genre and keep producing a book, uh, uh on a regular basis, you might lose audience. There is a downside to that. And also sometimes it's hard for booksellers to place you. What, I mean, what's your niche? Uh, the upside is freedom. Yeah. Thank freedom to write what I want, when I want. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I mean, this is something I'm, I'm manifesting, but it's a pipeline dream. You know how Reese Witherspoon has now her book club and she has a production company. I'm like, oh, if only I could have oh, yeah. an LGBTQ book club and production company. Because 
I would right away, Dancing on Tishabov, a short film. No question, that would be a wonderful short film. And that's where I've left you in suspense. Dancer from the Dance. I mean, I know that Holler. Oh my God, that's my favorite gay novel of all time. Yes, and why is it not a movie? I'm sorry. Like, what? I, I, I don't know. That was one of the first ones I read when I was... 16 or 17 in high school it's absolutely brilliant it it, was, i think it's the gay it's the gay uh great gatsby mm. <laughs> oh i like that i'm actually teaching the great gatsby in the fall so you might have given me an idea <laughs> well i mean i think i'll teach um dancing on tisha bob because now i know the author uh so <laughs> it's pretty my students well and and if you do teach it and if you do teach it uh, uh, your students should feel free to contact me if they oh, have questions that's that was, so kind perfect. Um, that is so nice oh i'm oh, happy to and, do so yeah well that's i have to tell you that's one of the things that i never expect did when i started started out as a writer that books essay uh books of mine, individual stories, individual essays would end up on syllabi around the country and even in Canada. And, uh, you know, when someone once uh, at Fordham told me that she was teaching me along with Toni Morrison, it just blew my mind. I thought, my God, I'm <laughs> what company to be in? Uh, so I'm happy to be homework. <laughs> Wonderful. That well, I expected, but I love it. And uh, coming out of shame is done by Doubleday is the publisher. Um, yes. And I had no idea that I would be, you were intervening with Eve Sedgwick, the queer theorist, who also uses Tompkins on shame. Uh, Tompkins, the psychologist, um, for those out there. Um, right, Sylvan Tompkins. Yes, yep. yes. Um, that- Oh yeah, Tompkins is, ver is, is very influential. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just curious. Did you know Eve Sedgwick? I don't think I met her. You know, I have to say that I've been uh, I've met so many different writers at so many different conferences. I don't oh, oh, sometimes I'll think I met someone and then I'll talk to her or email and she'll say, no, we haven't met. Uh, so I I don't think so. But I, I, I feel like I heard her speak. So I may have heard her speak and not introduce myself. Yeah, well. May her memory be a blessing, because sadly she's been gone for, I think, since the late 2000s. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, and also the uh, queer study aura ghost, uh, Michelle Foucault. Have you ever met Michelle Foucault? No, I haven't. But of course, I had to read them. Everybody, you know. Yeah. Who didn't, I'm always who curious. Didn't I'm like, Foucault, right? Who's when, ever met? I know. I'm. I just want to know what Foucault was like. But <laughs> that'll be my pet project. But sorry, I think. In what? Air, See, yeah. it, it, I could make up. I could make up a story. I mean, if you like. I. I you know. I actually was. You know. I. Um. I. I was in a theater class with Denzel Washington when I was in college, uh, oh. and so I often tell. I often tell people. You know how how he was down about his name and wondering if he should change it. And I, I just make up a story and say, oh, I, I, how I encouraged him to stick with the name because that would make him a star. And so I, I, it's a joke. I mean, people catch on quick enough. But you can, you know, uh, uh, you can say you met 
Foucault. How would anyone know differently? Well, that would be that would be quite a feat for me to meet him. Uh, <laughs> I would have had to have been reincarnated. Um, but yeah, so also I had written down like the sex scenes that I feel, well, the anticipation, right? So in your work, I mean, in what I've read, I haven't read a sex scene of yours yet, but the desire and the passion with Mark and Nat, the right central characters. I mean, I guess Brenda is also, you know, she at the end becomes the focal point, but um, so she's a protagonist too. That's there are a lot of sex scenes in Dancing on Tishbob, and yeah. and so you will find them eventually. Okay, okay. So I and I have to say, I read the short story, um, uh, where. It ends with Brenda's trying to understand her revulsion and shame towards her brother. Um, and that was a really interesting moment. I thought that Mark and Nat, well, Mark Moore, who in all terminology has this very Adonis Greek appearance. Um, I really want to know what you think, you think Mark looks like. Uh, but who would you cast as Mark? There's a question, love. Uh, depends on, oh, right. Uh, when I was writing and I was thinking of people, um, of people like Jason Isaacs and, um, um, the lead of, uh, Chariots of Fire. Um, oh, oh I can't I remember. Can I can't remember his name right too, now. With the knees. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I See, I feel like for Nat, that, I would I would hire Timothy Chalamet for Nat. That's what I was oh, thinking, though. Especially, good choice. Who would you uh, who would you pick for Brenda? Oh my! Oh, I hard know. Role. Lizzie Kaplan. Do you know that actress from Mean Girls? Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. She would be good. Well, you know, somebody actually did do a stage play based on on that story uh and it was going to be produced in chicago this was years ago and uh, and uh, he died and so it didn't happen and someone i think i've 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 had people who want to wanted to do screenplays um and you know i never get overly invested in those because i know that uh most of what is option never gets produced um uh, and someone was trying to do a screenplay uh, of, um, well, wanted to do a movie uh, based on my novel, um, The German Money, and um, that didn't go anywhere. So, mm. I, and I think that's a pretty common story for a lot of writers. So, as, as I, I, I forgot who it was, maybe Evelyn Tortenbeck or uh, uh, or another uh, lesbian author. Somebody said, "Don't worry about it ever being done. Just." just um just uh cash the check each time it comes mm. well speaking of well hopefully with all the streaming services i hope there's more of that like more of these independent projects can happen and if anyone's out there rosedale in love would be a really great screenplay um and don't forget the ivory tower playhouse well yeah we have a playhouse but we're People not we're not a production company yet. No, we're not uh, a company. There's a, but if there are, because we have a lot of um, screenwriters and um, 
those in film who listen, Lev. So, you know, get those gears going because Lev would be a great screenwriter if, if Lev wants to take that position. That's a whole other, um, you know, chair to sit in, literally. But it reminds me of when I saw Andre Osman. I actually saw him premiere Call Me By Your Name at the um, Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, um, Long Island. Um, and I mean, I'm not going to get too far into discussing the film because let's just say there's a certain person in the film who now, uh, you know, has some controversy, shall I put it? Um, and oh, yes, that's yeah. that's putting it mildly. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean, I discuss the novel a lot. Uh, the film, I think, is difficult to, it's difficult now for me to separate all of the accusations and, um, you know, just like whether or not it played a role in, um, in the actor's psyche, if that makes sense. Um, because- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and you know- Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, because- No, I was just thinking- is already an issue in Call Me By Your Name. I was gonna mention right. the power dynamic. And it's like you know, now that- Is that something that... that the actor brought to yeah. the role already? Yeah. Or was that something that he grew into because he had that experience of playing the role? Yeah, um, that's a really that's a tough question. It, uh, my guess would be it's a bit of both. Probably. I mean, yeah. but you know, um, I don't know, and I haven't I haven't seen I, I've seen it twice, but I haven't seen it. Uh, but those were that was before all the controversy. It's it's hard to separate uh, celebrities from in from the the gossip that we that we uh, read about them and i think we i think maybe last time we talked about uh rosedale and love uh that the gilded age was a period when gossip really took off about uh, uh celebrities and and wealthy people this is something that was not really uh not really part of, of our popular culture until that period and, and lots of wealthy people hired uh, public relations uh, specialists to help with their image. It's something that, that you know, most of us think is, is new, but isn't really. Uh, people in the early 1900s, especially if they were wealthy, uh, knew about their public image and, yes. and cultivated it. Yes. And, um, you know, the idea of influencers, that's existed since there has been this celebrity or society culture, I would say, um, right? right. I don't think all celebrities are necessarily, um, they're not high society. The two aren't the no. same. But I would say in our current age, it's actually really difficult to, when I was, when I was listening to Rosedale and Love, I thought a lot, Lev, about, well, what is the high society now? And can you identify those groups? But I really feel that celebrity culture has kind of become the, has become emblematic of who to look towards, where actually the um, most wealthy families, they're usually the ones who are the quietest. Right. Like they don't really want to be out there. 
Yeah. No, and and that that's the pattern that that existed over a hundred years ago. I mean, um, that you you kept your name out of the newspapers, out of the press. You didn't want to be talked about. Yeah, um, that's the tension in the great That's what. A, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, and and this whole celebrity culture and the whole um, issue of influencers and what role they play is is can be confusing for writers because um, do you want to be known as a, as a writer or do you want to be known? And mm. those are two separate things. Yeah, and um, I mean, were you inspired by Otto Herman Kahn for Rosedale and Love? I'm just really curious. I was inspired by, uh, I spent two years reading about um, uh, uh, the Gilded Age and reading about Jewish figures in it and, and pretty much everyone. I was partly inspired by, by him, but he really wrote, my portrait of Rosedale is really mostly sort of um, the inversion of what Wharton wrote about mm-hmm. him. Edith mm-hmm. Wharton wrote about him because she did not do enough to make him an individual and so uh, so my goal in writing that book was to give him a past to give him a his personal history with other people to give him a family to take him out of uh out of the um new york uh, uh upper class gaze to see see him with different eyes which was uh, which was tremendous fun for me uh, and so uh, I'm glad you're listening to the book because it's, it, it only recently became an audio book. Yeah. Um, and I want to just mention the um, actress. Oh, and, and if I may, something that yeah. the, the voice, the, uh, the, the woman who's voicing the book um, uh, just informed me that the book is up for some, uh, has been nominated for a voice award. So I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, Robin. Siegerman, Robin Siegerman. Thank yes. you, thank you. I'll, I'll make sure I edit this out so it sounds seamless. But yes, thank you, Robin Siegerman. I was really, it really came to life in her performance. So congratulations on that nomination. Yeah, she, she yes, thank you. And, and thank Robin. She's, she has been uh, passionate about getting that book and uh, produced as an audio book. And, and she has actually done some, at least two Wharton, uh, Wharton titles uh, that I know of. And so that, so it's a period that she really connects to. And, and you could tell just by listening. Oh, to she it. has that and lockjaw I, and, accent down to a tip. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's really good. It's really good. It's wonderful. To, yes, it's wonderful to listen to her. And uh, I, I was just thrilled that uh, she approached me about oh, the book. That's the kind of, th- you know, that's a good, that's a, the kind of thing that happens to writers all the time, the unexpected. Mm. Um, you know, your career goes off in directions that you don't, don't anticipate. And then people contact you uh, in various ways. Uh, you know, like an editor calling me and saying, I'm doing a, um, this book series. Do you have a book for me? Uh, th- those kinds of things are really exciting. Mm. Um, wow. Well, um, I think too. Oh, so we're, <laughs> I never got to the sex scene. Sorry. See, like Erica <laughs> now has the sex scene so prominent in my head in a good way. Um, but I was going to say, I just finished, um, not finished, but I'm listening to Just Above My Head, the James Baldwin novel. 
And oh my God, Baldwin is amazing. Yeah, that's why. And, uh, and another country, that. another. Yeah. Another country is absolutely uh, my favorite post-war novel. I think it's uh, American novel. I think it's it's a work of great genius and poetry. I've I've read it so many times that I feel like the book reads me at this point. <laughs> And, 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 and I read it in high school. I was really lucky to have a teacher who mentioned it. Uh, and, and that's when, uh, and, and then I followed Baldwin through everything that he's written, through his novels, through his, his essays. And he's a, he's a major influence in, on my career uh, and, and on my life because of, of how, um, how he lived his and how fierce he was about the truth. Oh yeah, well, because dan- yeah, but I was just gonna say I'm teaching another country with dancing on Tisha B'Av, okay. so that's who you're in. You're in company with Edith Wharton, James Baldwin, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and, and uh, I'm very happy to be there. I'm very happy. That's that's a great compliment. Thank you. Well, Baldwin, I had a high school teacher who introduced me to Baldwin. And that led me into queer literature, which was kind of that like couple of years of reading queer literature was um, sort of my safe distance to sort of explore my own identity and figure things out. Mm. How um, about, oh, Fear of which Flying. Which then led me to- Erica, Fear of flying. flying. Yes, what about it? Well, I remember you were gonna talk to Lev about- um, oh. Erica Jones. Well, it, no, oh, yes, I, inter- I've, I interviewed her, I think, uh, for my radio show, either about uh, uh, Fear of 50 or, or another one of her books. She was a, she was a great person to interview. Um, I had a, a radio show for a couple of years, where I, which I, I produced as well as uh, hosted because I wanted to have control over the, editing the interviews. And she was, she was just a great guest. I interviewed her when I was 16. <laughs> um, wow. I, 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 um, I spent a couple of summers at a fantastic, fantastic camp in Connecticut, uh, Creative and uh, Premier Arts Camp in Connecticut. And her daughter was a camper there. Her daughter's a few years younger than I am. And she came up and did a writing workshop, which I took about uh, writing about everyday objects. We did a lot of sensory exercises and uh, handing a bunch of blindfolded you know, teenagers a banana is not necessarily the best idea in the world. But, <laughs> but one of the things we did was we, among the things that we produced at camp, we had a regular sort of camp newspaper that came out and I was the only camper familiar with her work because I had come across one of her books on the bookshelf at home and read it and I uh, learned a lot from it but it was way over my head and when they asked about somebody to interview her I said well I've read one of her books and I had the fantastic opportunity to talk to her about writing and about teaching writing and and things like that when I was all of 16 years old. It was- Wait, What did you- Have you written about it? Have you- 
Oh, have I written about that experience? No, mm. you know, but oh, that would be a wonderful essay. I mean, it's 30 years. It was 30 years ago this summer. So yeah, I oh, mean, yes, I probably, you should write it. Oh, write it. Yeah, write it for write it for the uh, uh, write it. Absolutely, uh, that's something that I mean. It, what a conjunction! A young writer uh, on the uh, starting out, and somebody who's a famous writer and and fearless. Uh, I, I think that would be a fascinating story. Yes, and you could choose. Was it Fear of Flying, Erica, that you read? It was indeed. It was indeed Fear of Flying. And the things that made an impression on me still stick in my head now. I mean, because they were so shocking to me at sixteen, mm. fifteen, however old I was. Probably fifteen when I read the book, because I would have turned sixteen. You know, just just around that time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are things that still stick in my head from you know from re from reading that book for the first time it and her daughter went to your summer camp yeah molly is as i said molly's a couple of years younger than i am well so, so. if you're out there molly or erica we'd love to, <laughs> you know bring you into the community i mean lev i just found when i showed erica that audible has a BBC dramatization of Fear of Flying. I said, I have to listen. Like, because again, Fear of wow. Flying, another one that should be made into a movie. I I don't know. Wasn't, it, Matt, wasn't there a movie version? Oh, is there? I don't, I don't recall. I, oh, I, well, maybe I just remember reading somebody was trying to film it and was, I, I have a feeling it was optioned. Uh, I could be wrong. I mean, it's a, quite a long time ago. She's she's a wonderful fiction writer. I think she's an even better memoir, memoirist. Her book, um, her book about turning 50 and her book uh, about Henry Miller, uh, who was something of a mentor. Uh, that's also a terrific memoir. I just. Oh, and I'm sure she reads uh, her. She's awesome. I haven't read mm -hmm. Henry Miller book, but the um the the fear of 50 book is on my list mm. because i am approaching that you're age there you're almost there um i said you're almost thank there. you for the reminder no it's good i think that that's the turning point it's half of a life lit well ho hopefully right i mean you never know we might all live to 200 half of a biblical life right yeah there you go half of a biblical yeah <laughs> Well, I was just gonna say, and the hut and the chutzpah that she has, um, and well, you know what? In a way, this goes to what I know Lev had wanted to talk about, and I'm excited for you to talk about the idea of coming out twice, but especially with being, you know, having a queer and Jewish identity, and um, like when it comes to your work. Um, Erica Jung's work, um, even though I don't think she identifies as queer, but um, in terms of the feminist Jewish lens, but also, um, well, I, I would say Larry Kramer, Tony Kushner, um, that it's such an interesting intersection. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is not that there's a reason why I'm not trying to harp on like why some of these texts haven't been turned into Hollywood films, 
But I sometimes do wonder, is it because of the intersectionality? Is it because it isn't an orthodox tale? Um, Thank you so much to Lev Raphael. Uh, I am leaving you on a cliffhanger. We can't wait to pick this up next week with Lev with the question that I just asked about coming out twice as a writer. So tune into that next Saturday. We want to thank Words Matter Bookstore, our official sponsor. Thank you, Carol. She's continuing to really just help grow our artistic and literary community. Um, I also want to acknowledge our subscribers who are those who've donated to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, so Grace Laidlaw, Barbara Castle, Lauren Banco, Renata Leo, Sam Feinsilver, Lisa Amat, and my family who were the beta testers for the donation section. So thanks to my parents. Um, you can always subscribe by just donating to us. We get a whole list of anyone who donates to us and we really do appreciate it. It's going to allow us to continue having events like the Open Mic Poetry Night and also having book clubs. You'll see on our main page, ivorytowerboilerroom.com, that there is a October book club. Uh, we are offering PJ Vernon's Bathhouse as our first book club choice. We thank PJ Vernon. He's been so collaborative and there's future book clubs in the works. It's going to happen every month. So we can't wait to release what the other book choices are. But please do RSVP for the book club. It is ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com is how you RSVP. We hope that we get a lot of you coming to join virtually. Um, it is a virtual event. And you will have the opportunity when you RSVP to ask PJ Vernon a question or two that you have. And when we interview him for the podcast, we're going to ask him all of those questions. So it's a really exciting way for you to get to interact with him. Okay, well, I'm now going to say, let's put a bookmark in this, our new slogan. And I am going to turn it over to Mary, who will be providing our bookmark about how you can follow us. Bye, everyone. Okay, we're going to put a bookmark in this. Please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog, as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and a brand new donate button so you can support what we do here. Thanks for listening. And now here's our theme song, Lover Man, written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ram Ramirez, and James Sherman in a new rendition co-created by Anne Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames. Thank you.